If you're just human, then you need to get saved because you're not in Christ. Because you're not just human. If you're in Christ, you are the, a son or a daughter of the living God that created the world. The God of all eternity. The God to whom nothing is impossible. And you are his child with his nature in you. Peter says we've been given the divine nature based on precious promises. God's nature is in you if you're a child. And we need to stir up what he told Timothy. Stir up the gift that's in you. Stir up the gift that's in you. You need to talk to yourself sometimes. Sometimes you need to shake yourself and just talk to yourself. Look in that mirror and say, you're a child of God. Tell yourself to stop feeling sorry for yourself. Tell yourself, that's what the world does that has no hope. But you are a child of the living God. The temple, the dwelling place of the Spirit by whom God created the universe. Romans 8, 11 says, If the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Wow. All dormant, sitting in there because we think of ourselves and talk about ourselves just like the world thinks about us and thinks about themselves. But you were made to fly, soar. You were made to overcome. In fact, the Bible says you're more than an overcomer through him who loved us. You're more than an overcomer. In fact, Revelation says we need to overcome. Because the rewards for those who overcome. And so you were made to overcome, but not in your strength. That's why Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord. In the Lord. And the power of His might. But that might's in you. It's just dormant in us. We need to release it. In the middle of your circumstances, just release it. Amen? Well, that's sermon number two. <laughs> Praise God. Oh, that song stirred me up. Mm. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we've come into this year. Help us to see us how you see us, not how we see ourselves. Help us to see ourselves not as just weak people that are failing and struggling to get by, but help us to see ourselves as the body of Christ, children of the living God, filled with your Spirit. And all that you can do, you can do through us if we'll just believe you and allow you to. And you want to this year do great and mighty things. You want to do great and mighty things. And you do them through us. And so, Lord, today begin to open our eyes to see with our understanding of our heart the hope that's been set before us and the glory of the inheritance that's been given to us with all the saints and the exceeding greatness of the power that you've displayed towards us and in us when you raise Christ Jesus from the dead. Open our eyes to see the truth through the word of God today. In Jesus' name, <clears throat> amen and amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Last week we talked, began, and I said, I'm going to try to end it today because it's not a long series, to talk about entering his rest. Come to the end, I don't know, I just seem to get weary at the end of a year. 
and uh, uh, I just get, I don't know what it is. I just tend to get tired physically, tired emotionally, and sometimes tired spiritually. And, and when we do that, the, our instinct is to say, well, I need to sleep more, I need to, and there are sometimes our body's tired, and we do need to get physical rest. But I've learned that there are three different types of rest that we can need, and you need to know which one it is that you need, maybe more than one. There's physical tiredness, weariness, and for that you need physical rest. It's not a sin, you know. We live in a world that thinks if you rest at all, then you're slacking off. That's just, that's just not wise, let's put it that way. <laughs> Jesus rested. He would go out and minister, and then he would pull aside and rest. So there's a physical rest that we need. Don't, it's not you know, some badge of courage for you to burn yourself out and have a breakdown. Say, well, look what I did. Nobody's going to care. And that means you can't be effective for what God's called you to do. So, in fact, what was built into the law is a Sabbath day of rest. One out of every seven days, we were to, you were to physically rest from all work. And that principle is still out there, whether we're to keep the Sabbath legally or not, I'm not talking about. But the principle of a cycle of rest, physical rest. There's also a, a, a mental or emotional rest that we need sometimes. Sometimes we're mentally tired. I'm just, you know, and we live in a society now and a culture where, where everybody has access to you 24 hours a day. If you've got a smartphone, an iPad, or a, a laptop, they just, you know, used to be able, I, I'm finding, I'm getting good at forgetting my phone. <laughs> I came to work the other day and forgot it, and I, I didn't go back to get it. I was only going to be here for like three or four hours. You know, I can live without my phone for three hours. If I can't, then I got a problem. Of course, I had my iPad with me and my laptop. <laughs> but, but our minds get so... Your mind cannot handle information 24 hours a day. Your mind cannot handle 8 or 9 or 12 hours worth of just being bombarded with information. It needs a time of rest. And the problem is if you don't give your body rest and your mind rest, they'll take it eventually. They'll take it eventually. And I see the doctor going, yes. <laughs> but there's a spiritual rest. And that's a little different. Spiritual rest means I don't take two weeks off from church. That's not spiritual rest. <laughs> spiritual rest does, you know, I've been reading my Bible faithfully for a while. I'll take a couple of days off. That's not spiritual rest. Jesus said, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. Matthew eleven twenty eight, and I will give you rest. So we're talking about a rest that the Bible not only offers us, but God expects us to enter into it. And we're learning that not only expect it's critical that we learn to enter in to this rest. So we began last week, and we looked in the beginning of chapter one, the first several verses, and it says that God spoke in prior times to our forefathers. That's the the patriarchs. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, he's the, the leaders of the Old Testament, he spoke to them through the prophets. But in these last days, the age we're in now, he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus. And then we saw in chapter 2, he says, we need to be aware, if the message spoken to the, our forefathers through prophets and through angels, that's just messengers. If that, if that had consequences to not listening to it, how much more if we don't pay attention to the message spoken to us by His Son? And that message is the gospel. 
lest you drift away. And that's what we talked about last time. We talked about drifting away. We're warned to be careful that we don't drift away. And we talked about drifting away means something, a process is taking place that I'm not conscious is happening until suddenly I get somewhere I never expected to get. That there are people that just decide, look, I'm just going to go do my own thing, chuck God, chuck the Bible, chuck everything. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. That's not drifting away. That's choosing to walk away. And when that happens, you know you're doing it. It's something, right or wrong, you know you're doing it. The more dangerous thing is drifting. You just stop paying attention. You stopped keeping your eye on the goal. You stop paying attention to the compass heading on your boat or your airplane. And the next thing you know, you've been looking at... Well, I, have, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you ever in driving have taken your eyes off the road and you've looked at, oh, your phone or something else and the next thing you know, you were headed off the road? You were drifting because you stopped looking at your goal. You stopped looking at where you were headed. And there are times when, when with something may be going on in the car or I'm listening to something or my mind's, I'm listening to a message or something like that and, I, and my, my mind wanders. I have to remember, no, your first responsibility, John, is to keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. And anything that's going on in this car that distracts you from that, you need to not pay attention to so, lest you drift away. And if you drift away long enough, you'll drift off the road and into a ditch. And so chapter 2 warns us about that, that this is a message that came by the Son of God, brought this message to us, and it cost him his life to do it. That's what chapter 2 says. And by doing that, he defeated Satan. He destroyed his power over our lives. We talked about that last week. He defeated Satan's power. And what it goes on to say, if he's done all this and if he's told us all this, let's be careful not to drift away from it. We're going to look today at what it is we're not to drift away from. Isn't that important to know? Isn't it important to know what we're to keep our eyes on and not drift away and just not be told, don't drift away? Yeah, from what? From what? And there are many commentaries I've read about these sections of Scripture talking about they mean all kinds of things. We're just going to go back and look at what it says and just do what it says to do. So Hebrews chapter 2 says, let's not drift away. warns us about drifting away. So we're going to pick up in chapter 3 because he begins to tell us what to not drift away from. Chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, that's us, he's talking to the church, partakers of the heavenly calling, so he's talking to Christians that are saved, consider, that word is a strong word, which means keep your eyes on, stay focused on the apostle and high priest of our confession. Confession of what? Confession of faith. You came to Christ, however you did it, whether it was here in front of this sanctuary in some other church or, in my case, in the, my living room and then later in a church. Wherever it was, somewhere along the line, you declared that Christ Jesus was your Savior. And that He was your Lord. That's what Romans 10 tells us it takes. If you believe with your mouth that God believe with your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, 
you shall be saved. It's a confession of our mouth. It's interesting because one of the meanings of the word of confession is to adopt as yours. So when you confess something, what that word actually means is you're declaring, that's mine. I own that, or it's part of me. Confessing a sin, what is in that? That's accepting responsibility. It's mine. I broke the window. It's, I threw the ball, and it went through the window. I'm, I'm accepting ownership of what I did, responsibility for what I did. That's confessing a sin, but you can confess a positive thing. Confess love for your spouse. Confess commitment to somebody. Confess your love for the Lord and confess Him as your Lord, which means you're adopting Him. You're accepting by your words. You're giving Him entrance into your life. And the apostle wrote this as saying in the first two chapters that he is the high priest. He's our high priest. He represents us before God. And you entered into that by confessing him to yourself, accepting him with your mouth, accepting him by declaring he's yours. And now what he's saying here is he says, let us consider, let us consider, let us keep our eyes on, let us keep our focus on the apostle and the high priest. The apostle means the messenger and the high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ who was faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses was faithful in all his house. So he's using Christ as an example. He was faithful to his father to stay focused and committed to carry out what he was called to do. And then he says, as Moses was faithful in his house, he was faithful to do what he was called to do. He kept his purpose of his life. He kept the focus of his life on what he was here to do and who he represented. And, the, and Christ did the same thing. And so... This writer calls them faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to the one that called them. Faithful means I don't walk away. I don't abandon. I'm faithful to my wife, which means I don't look to some other woman. I'm faithful to my wife, which means I cling to her. My focus is on her. I'm faithful to the church, which means I live out my commitment. I'm faithful to God, which means I live out my commitment to Him, to love Him and to serve Him. So the considering means to keep our eyes considered. It doesn't mean just, yeah, hey, think about it. It means be considered of in the sense of making it my purpose, my focus. Not getting, not drifting away from my confession of Him as who He is in my life. Okay. And now he goes down. He compares Moses and Christ and what they were faithful over. Verse 7, this is kind of where we left off last time. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, remember we began by saying God is a God who speaks. Chapter 1, verse 1, we looked at, we just mentioned it, but we looked at it last week. God spoke in old days, in former days. He spoke through angels or messengers and He spoke through His prophets and now in this dispensation, in this age we're in, He has spoken to us through His Son. God is a God who speaks to us. And so the writer is saying, he's quoting from the Psalms, he says, today if you hear His voice, which implies He's speaking, today if you hear His voice, there's something we're challenged to do. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers, this is God speaking, 
through, through Psalm 95. In the, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my way, so I've sworn in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. What he's referring to here, and this is where we ended up last time, what he's referring to here is a story in the Old Testament of the children of Israel when they were delivered out of Egypt. And they were in bondage in Egypt for 430 years, the Bible tells us. And we talked a little bit about that bondage last week. Yes, they were fed. The government fed them. But at what price? They had no freedom. From the time the sun went up to the time the sun went down, they did hard labor. They built the, the, the cities of Pharaoh and those, those wonderful uh, pyramids that the world wonders at were built on the backs of Jewish slaves. Their blood, their sweat, their death, many of them gave their lives because they were considered less than animals. Animals had a greater value than the slaves did. And finally, they cry out to God for deliverance and God has already prepared a deliverer, Moses. He's 80 years into his preparation to be a deliverer. So that when they cry out, God sends him back to Egypt to deliver them out. And they come out supernaturally. God performs 10 miraculous signs to, to, to encourage Pharaoh to let them go. And the last one that God is forced to do is the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. From Pharaoh's oldest firstborn son down to the firstborn of the animals of the land. And the children of Israel are spared because of the blood of a lamb that was smeared over the doorposts of their dwellings. And when that angel of death came, it saw the blood of the lamb and said, the price has been paid here. The price has been paid here. They saw all that. Then they come out and they come to the edge of the Red Sea and the Red Sea is the block between getting from where they are in Egypt out and now Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them to destroy them and God opens the Red Sea supernaturally. There's no other way. Opens the Red Sea and they go across on dry land and when they get on the other side, Pharaoh's army comes in to destroy them and the waters swallow them up and one day they see their enemy destroyed in front of them. They see their enemy destroyed in front of them. Hebrews 2, we read it last week and I mentioned it a few minutes ago, said Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us because we wear flesh. He took on flesh so that by his death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So just as their enemy was destroyed and his power was lost by God supernaturally swallowing up those chariots, Hebrews 2 says, so our enemy, his power has been defeated by the work that Jesus did on that cross. But their enemy was defeated, but they still lived like defeated people. And the church still lives as if we're defeated people also. They come across and three days later when their canteens get dry, they start crying out. It was better for us back in Egypt. They didn't last three days. It was better for us back in Egypt. And over and over again, when something would go wrong, they would complain and they would want to go back to Egypt. Now turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. 
We're going to pick up on this story. Because there was a short route by which God could get them from Egypt, where they were in bondage, to a land He had promised them in Exodus. A land, God said, was flowing with milk and honey. We talked last week about flowing has a significance. It means they were going to have to work it that hard. It was a land that provided their needs. It was a land that was built for them, that God had designed for them. But He couldn't take them by the shortest route because on the way through the shortest route, they were going to run across the Canaanites who were on the edge of that land. They were on the coastal edge of that land. And He said, I know you because if you see them, you're going to turn back to Egypt. So I've got to take you through the Sinai Peninsula. And God took them down to the southern part after I think it was three months. And that on the Mount Sinai, God gave them the law. And then one took, led them all the way up around to the east side of Palestine to lead them in. And that process took a year. They could have made it in a couple of weeks. But it took a year because of their unbelief. What could, does God want to do in your life? that He could do quickly if we just trusted Him. But because God knows where we are, He's got to lead us through other means so we'll continue to look to Him and it takes longer than it would need to take in God's life. We're only going to find that when we get to heaven. And we say, God, why didn't you do this? He said, I would have if you'd just taken me at my word. It's right in there. Here it is in my word. And you knew it. You just didn't bother to believe it. You tried to find some other answer, so I had to work through that other answer to get you what you asked for. But I had a much easier, shorter method to do it if you just trusted me. So now they're at the entrance to the land that God has promised them. It's His purpose for, for their it's, their... it's the fulfillment of their purpose. Now, some people teach you that the promised land is heaven. But we're going to see it couldn't be heaven because when they went and looked at the promised land, there were enemies in there. And I assure you, there are no enemies in heaven. <clears throat> there, are no, there, are no, there, are no, there are no warring nations in, in, in heaven. So this can't be a place that represents heaven. It's a place of God's victory for a Christian. It's the place of it's the full life we sang about, we heard her sing about earlier. It's the fullness of who you are. It's stepping in to the fullness of who you are. And that means other things. So here they are at the edge of it. God's already told them in Hebrews, I think it's in verse three, chapter three, he says, I'm giving you a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's the land of milk and honey, but it's also the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the and the and the other rites, all those ites that are in there. In the termites, they're, no, they're not one of them. But it is, they're there. It's like God doesn't, it's not that He's ignorant of it. He tells them they're there, but He says, I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. So we'll pick up now in Deuteronomy 13. I mean, uh, Numbers 13. Numbers 13. Yep. All right. Numbers 13. Because we'll come back to Hebrews. We're going to pick up here in verse, um, well, it lists all the people, uh, that, that, the, 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 the leaders of the tribes. And then what happened, I'm just going to summarize a little bit of it. You've got to, you've got to read this together with Deuteronomy's version of it, which is a recounting, because otherwise you won't get a full picture. Because here it says, and God told them to go choose 12 spies and send them into the land. One spy from each of the tribes, a representative to go in. 
But if you read Deuteronomy, what happened is they came and asked Moses, we're at the edge of the land. Can we go check out and verify that what God's told us is true? So in essence, God says, okay, go do it. But it wasn't what he will. It wasn't his best for them. So they choose 12 spies. Among them, two of them, is Joshua and Caleb. And they go and spend 40 days going all the way up to the northern end of Hebron and working their way down. And when they get to a valley called Eskol, the grapes and the fruit in there is so big, they want to take some samples back. So they pick off of a vine a cluster of grapes that's so huge, the man, a man can't carry it, so they have to tie it to a pole, and it takes two men to carry this cluster of grapes back. And they get back. We're going to pick up on the story. Verse 26. And now they departed. And they came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. That's the eastern border of Israel. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told them and said, We went to the land where you sent us, and it truly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. What they're saying, in essence, is what God said about this land is true. We've seen it. Not only have we seen it, we brought back to you evidence so that you can see it. That what God said is there really is there. Now, this is slowing down because this is the issue. God told them, first of all, I'm giving you the land. Not you've got to earn it. I'm just giving it to you. Then he told them what was in the land, because he knew they needed to know that. It's a land of blessing, a prospering, a land that flows with milk and honey. You don't have to squeeze it out. You don't have, it flows out. It's easy to get. It's a blessed place I have prepared for you. And they come back and said, yeah, we went and checked out what God said was the truth. In other words, God told us the truth. They had to see it before they would believe it. You following me? Okay. However, they saw more. Verse 28. Nevertheless, oh, watch that. What God said was true, but... I know the Word of God says this, but, same thing, they had God's Word. God's Word is, I'm giving you that land. Now, anybody else told them that, it would be wise to go and figure out whether they could do what they said they were going to do. But this is God, and it's not as if they're not familiar with Him, they've watched what He has done. They've seen what he's capable of doing. They just saw the mightiest army on the face of the earth destroyed in front of them by a sea supernaturally opening up and swallowing them. They saw the the, the hail and they saw the lice. And not only that, 
those plagues came on Egypt, but they didn't come in Goshen where the Israelites were. So God did the plagues everywhere else but where they were. So it's not as if they could say, well, you know, it was just kind of a, there was a bad, it was a, it was a, it was a bad season. And there was just a seven-year locust came through. No, they didn't come to them. They came to everybody, came all around them, but didn't come to them. It was supernatural. Supernatural. They'd seen that. They'd seen all these things. God had demonstrated to them who He was and what He was able to do. And now He told them what He will do and they should know what He's able to do. And having seen the proof that what He said was there was there, they said it's true. But, nevertheless, The people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and they're very large. And we saw, I've got to underline that word saw. We saw. We're basing what we're going to tell you on what we saw. I know what God said, but we saw there. The descendants of Anak, there were a race of men that were considered giants. Rephidim, they're called in some parts, some translations. And the Amalekites dwell in the land, and the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea, all along the banks of the Jordan. And they're getting all worked up. Verse 30, And Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Wait a minute, doesn't Caleb understand what they're just saying? I mean, he was there with them. Didn't he see the descendants of Anak, these giants? Didn't he see the Amorites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and the otherites? Didn't he see all those? Is he just not thinking straight? I mean, come on, Caleb. We saw all those things. Caleb says, we're well able. I know they're there, but they're irrelevant. Because God said, I'm giving you this land. So I don't care what we saw there. It's irrelevant because God said He's giving it to us. This is going to come down to us in a few minutes. So just keep following this out. So we had to calm the people. Notice when you're walking in faith with God, you don't have to be calmed down. But you'll get worked up. I saw that. You know what I saw? Oh, what I feel. Oh, what the doctor said. Oh, what the bank account. Oh, you know what I got in the mail. And we get all worked up. Caleb had to calm him down by saying, I don't care what we saw. We're well able. We're well able because God's well able. We're well able, not in ourselves, but because God's well able. Now, we're talking about not drifting our focus away. I mean, what happened is Joshua and Caleb kept their focus on where their focus needed to be. They weren't distracted by the sons of Anak. They weren't distracted by the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites. They weren't distracted by what they saw because they walked with their focus on what God said. And so their confidence is we're well able and everyone around them is panicking. 
Okay. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad, some translations say an evil report. I say, I think it's 53, says, whose report will you believe? And they gave the children of Israel a bad or evil report which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we've gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. God said it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And they've taken what they've seen, and they're, how do they know the land devours its people? They were only there 40 days. How do they know the land devours? Obviously it doesn't devour all of them because there are people there. So they're drawing conclusions about what's going to happen to them based on what they saw and their own reasoning on what they saw. Joshua and Caleb aren't trying to think about what they saw. All they're thinking about, all they're keeping their focus on so they don't stray away is what God said. And trusting what God said. Now remember, we saw in Hebrews, it says, Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in this day. Now let's see what happens in chapter 14. Let's finish chapter 13, because that's the critical part here. So this is a land, their report is this is a land that has spies in the land, it devours its inhabitants, all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. And that wasn't true, it was only one group. But their mind is exaggerating now. Ever ever notice that when you start going down this kind of path, everything's bad. Oh, life's terrible! When one small thing's happened, but that's all you thought about and talked about, it gets blown up in your mind way out of proportion. And you start thinking and saying things that really, in reality, you know aren't true, but you're just on a roll. And it's especially true when you've got nine others with you like they had, and they're just, you know, we're egging each other on. That was terrible. It wasn't that terrible. Oh, my goodness. Did you see how big they were? And every time they tell them, they get bigger. And then they go, now listen to that. What are they making here? They're making a confession. They're making a confession. He said, don't drift away. Consider, keep your focus on Jesus, the high priest of your confession. They're beginning to confess, and therefore they will own what they confessed. All right. Verse 33. And we saw the giants. Some translations will say the Nephilim. The descendants of Anak came from giants, and they were like, we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in theirs. Here's what it comes down to. Because all they're looking at and all they're focused on is what they think they saw and what it means about them. Their whole focus is they looked at this land. Yes, it flows with milk and honey. And yes, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the otherites are in there. 
But when I look at who I am compared to them, no way can we go in there. We'll be devoured. God has said nothing about who they were. In fact, if you look in Deuteronomy, he says, I didn't bring you into the land because you were the strongest and the biggest and the, and the, and the best. I brought you in because I loved you. I gave you this land because I loved you and I made a promise to your forefathers. That's why I didn't do it because of who you are. I did it because of who I am. I love you. And I made a commitment to your predecessors, to your forefathers. But what they're looking at, they're looking at that land and what's in it in light of who they, they are and what they think they can do. And so they say because there are giants in there, and their enemies in there, we're like grasshoppers to them. We're, first of all, notice it says, we're grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we are in theirs. Now the interesting thing, if you go forward and you go into the book of Joshua, when 40 years later they did go into the promised land and they sent spies in this time and they met Rahab. And she took them into their house and she said, we don't understand why you didn't come in 40 years ago. Because we were all holed up in here, scared that the God, the people that belonged to the God of Israel were going to come here and that God was going to devour us. Those unbelievers had more faith in God than God's covenant people. So what they were believing wasn't true. The people that were there, what they saw as enemies... In, in that promised land, we're not looking down on the Israelites and say, they're just grasshoppers. Come on, I can't wait to step on you. No, they were scared because they didn't see the Israelites for who they were. They saw the Israelites for who they were in covenant with. But the Israelites were looking at themselves and what they can do. And as a result, when God said, enter in, I've given it to you, they said, no, we can't do that. That's too hard. That's too much for us. Because we know what we're like. And in chapter 14, Joshua and Caleb and Moses, just, they, they tear their robes and begin to pray. Because, see, unbelief is not just a casual thing. It's not like, well, we, it's an option. Well, we can believe God, and that would really please Him, but we don't have, and He'll still love. No, we're going to see that belief or unbelief is a big deal to God. It's a big deal to God. All right. Oh, boy. If you go down in chapter 14, we'll look quickly down at uh, verse 5. It says, uh, oh, what they said is, they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Let us select another leader, because Moses isn't going to do what we want. And let us select another leader to take us back to Egypt. Here, be careful, because you see, when we start drifting away, the, the tendency of our flesh is to go back to where we used to be. Go back, to drift back. See, we don't just drift away, you drift back. And when they took their eyes off of God and trusting Him and what He said about them, they began to look at themselves. Everything cried out to them, it was better in Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. I mean, that's crazy. They know what it was like back there, but you see, what you get, begin to get deceived when you take your eyes off of Him and our focus on Him. And so they're going to select the leader and go back, and Moses and Aaron fall on their face and cry out before God. 
to have mercy. And God finally says to Moses, that's it, I've had it. I'm done with these guys. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says, well, what are the Egyptians going to think? They're going to think you couldn't get your people into that land. I'm asking you to pardon them. God says, I'll pardon them because of your word. He does that twice with them. I'll pardon them because of your word. It's intercession. Moses intercede for them. By the way, these are the people that gave him nothing but trouble. God says to here, what's going to happen? You said that because I brought you out here and I mistreated you, that you were going to die, your carcasses were going to die in the wilderness. I'm going to take, give you what you said. Be careful what you say. But your children who you said would die here, I'm going to bring them in. And so every person that was, every person that was 20, over 20 years of age, every person that came out of Egypt and had all that memory died in the wilderness, except two, Joshua and Caleb, who rejected the evil report, and they gave a report based on what God had said. It may have delayed them 40 years, but they still got in there. They still got in there. They got what they believed about God. They took God at His word, and they got what they believed about God. But God was angry at this generation. Now let's go back to Hebrews. See how this applies to us. That's what verse 7 through 11 talks about in Hebrews 3. So I swore that they should not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God and exhorting one another daily while it's still called today, lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This is the sin of unbelief. For we become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Confidence in what? Confidence in what He did for us. Confidence in Him as the high priest, our high priest. Confidence in Him as our Savior. Confidence in Him as our Lord. Verse 15, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of rebellion. For having heard... They rebelled. Even, indeed, it was not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses, corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see then that they could not enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4. Therefore, now he's going to talk about us, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear or be alert, lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to you as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest as he said, so I shall swear in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. Let's stop there a second. Let's see what he's talking about. He's referring back to the, to the order of creation. On, on, on the first day, God created this. When he came to the seventh day, it says he rested. And then in Exodus 20, when God hands the law to Moses on the top of the mountain, 
one of the commandments is you shall keep the Sabbath you shall, and keep it holy, sacred. And this word just means rest. And they were, they were commanded to take one day at the end of their week and rest. They were not to do any work. They were to rest. And that was to represent the rest that God entered into when he finished creation. There was a practical side to it, which we talked about earlier, but there was a spiritual side. Because you see, if you imagine, and they used to do this, imagine if you just, if you take one day off and you don't do anything. You just sit at home, you read your Bible, you know, you just rest, you don't do anything. Yeah, but, but I got stuff to do. I mean, I, I just, you know, not, how, how are they going to get along without me? I mean, there's things, that, but pastor, there's things that got to be done. But those things, if you just set them aside, you find out it's humbling to find out that the world actually goes on. The world can actually function if you take a day of rest. It makes you acknowledge that everything doesn't depend on you. That things that you think are critical are not as critical as you think they are. It brings us back, boing, to our focus. So there was a spiritual side to this. There was a practical side. I'm not getting into whether we should practice the Sabbath or not, but the principle's true. The principle's true. All right. Let's go over to verse 6. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom for it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, he designates a certain day in David, saying, which is through the Psalms, Today, after such a long time, it's been said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If Joshua had given them a rest, he would not after if it were spoken about another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. We're not talking about heaven here. And here's the answer. For he who has entered his rest, that's God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Here's what this whole thing is about, the whole lesson of Hebrews. God's rest that he's referring to, the rest of God at the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day. Now listen carefully, not because he was tired. God's process of creation for six days didn't exhaust him. And he said, oh man, jeez, i got to take a break. I mean, this is hard. All he did was spoke, let there be. God never gets tired. There's no, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a source of energy and life. So what is it he, what, it is, what is this rest that God entered into that we're entered into? He rested on the seventh day because the work was finished. He rested on the seventh day because what he set out to do was done. And when the work's done, now you can rest. You can stop your work. What's this apply to us? On the cross, Jesus' last words were, it is finished. The struggle for your sins, the struggle to overcome Satan, the struggle to get acceptable to God was finished. It was paid for. 
in full. If you go on and read further in Hebrews in chapter 9, and 8, 9, and 10, you'll see it so clearly laid out. He paid the price once and for all. That means all time and for all people. He paid it in full. And it goes on to say, let us labor, let us be diligent to enter into this rest. What's the rest that the church is called to? It's the rest in the completed work of Christ. It's to rest that if I have come to Christ, if I have put my faith in Him, it's not just in Him, it's in what He did for me on the cross. And what we have to keep careful of is we don't drift away from our faith being in what He did on the cross and we begin to start working this out ourselves. Colossians was written about that. I mean, Galatians, Galatians was. Galatians 3, Paul starts out by saying, if you were saved by faith and the work of the Holy Spirit in you, why are you now going to be completed by your own efforts? Because the human being is in such a way that we, can, we drift if we don't stay focused. Just like our cars will drift if we don't keep our eyes on the road. We'll drift if we don't stay focused on the cross and on what He did for us on the cross. And that it's completed. He didn't start something, you finish. It's it. The cross is everything. Paid in full. It was not a down payment so that you now improve yourself to the point that you can measure up to what He did. He did the whole thing or He did nothing. And you know you've stepped into it because you're resting. You're not striving to measure up to Him all the time. You're not striving to be acceptable. I don't know if God loves me. You know, if, when you're up and down and up and down, you're, you're, you're laboring. When you're up and down, you're not resting. And we're up and down, up one day and down the next, based on how I feel about myself. Well, you know, I, I was... I prayed an hour yesterday. And I read my Bible, and I helped an old lady across the street, and I gave my tithe Sunday. I did all these things. Oh, I can come and talk to God now. But then I have a day where I didn't read my Bible the way I ought to, or I may have you know, gotten up too late, and, and I, I was a little short with my kids, and, and we just kind of come with our head down. And not that we should do those things, but they don't affect your standing before God at all. Because then your standing before God, listen carefully, is based on how you see yourself and what you're capable of doing. And that makes us just exactly like the Israelites who said, God's given me this. He's given me righteousness. He's made me a new creature in Christ. But I can't walk in that because I know myself. That standard's too high. I can't achieve that. That's like the Israelites saying, yeah, I know God said He's given it to us. He's given it to us. I know He said it's done, but I know myself, I can't walk in that. And so we hold back. God called that an evil report of unbelief. It's unbelief to not accept what He's given you and try to measure up somehow by your own efforts, by trying to be faithful to what you're doing. Yes, we're to be faithful, but not to enter in in order to fulfill what God's called us to do. But you can't do that if you don't know you're in there. 
And so many Christians are laboring not to enter into the rest. They're laboring because they don't see themselves there yet. God's given this to them, but I've got to measure up to get in there. You can't ever measure up. Any more than they could have defeated those giants in their own strength. And here's what it comes down to. If you're trusting in your own efforts, if you're trusting in your intentions and your desires, if you're trusting in how hard you're trying, if you're, try- you're just like the children of Israel saying, I can't enter in. I can't enter in. I know God's given this to me. Every time I read my Bible, I see the blessings of God. I see the promises of God. I see the rest. I see it. But I just can't get there. Why? Because you're looking at you and what you know you can't do. And that's what kept them out. When God says, I've given you the land. Jesus says, I've paid the price. 100%. Paid full. Colossians says on that cross the handwriting the handwriting of ordinances the handwriting of offenses that God had listed against you for everything you've done wrong was obliterated. It wasn't crossed out. It wasn't marked paid in full. The word in Greek means obliterated so it cannot be read anymore. And that lines up with the Old Testament scripture that says he throws our sin as far as the east is the west. Think about the east from the west. There's no, you can't, if you keep going east, you never get west because you keep heading east. That all depends on which way you're facing. So if you're facing one way and you choose to turn around and face the other way, that's when you find west. That's when you remember your sins. But if you keep your eyes on God, if you keep going east the way he's facing east, then you'll never face what you were before. The apostle Paul had to deal with that because he killed Christians. And in Philippians chapter 3, this was the other message I almost gave this morning. He says, forgetting those things which lie behind. Forgetting them. Forgetting them. Forgetting them. Forgetting those things which lie behind. Forgetting them. I press on. I press on. I keep my focus. I don't get distracted. I don't wander away. I keep my focus. I press on towards the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. I keep pressing towards Him. I keep pressing towards what He's done for me. I keep pressing towards the cross. I keep pressing for that. Because if you don't press towards it, you'll begin to drift. And when we drift, we drift back into our old habits, just like Egypt was. Their old habits, which is based on what I can do and what I know about myself. The Bible says, if God looked on us as ourselves, none of us stands a chance. But He doesn't look at you based on you. He looks at you through the cross. He looks at you as a child of God in whom He has put His own life, His own Son, has made a child of God. That's what He looks at you, and because we still look at ourselves in terms of ourselves, we don't ever get up and do what He's called us to do, because who are we? We're just human. This is why you've got to stop saying, well, you understand I'm just human. No, you're not. If you keep thinking of yourself as just human, you're just like the Israelites, I can't enter in. I know what God says, but there, there are things to do in there I can't do. I mean, it talks about forgiving people. I can't do that. That's saying there's a giant there. 
I can't, I can't, I can't overcome that giant. You don't overcome it in your own strength. The love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy... It's God's love that you love them with. It's God's love in you. God's life in you with which you forgive. It's God's life in you by which you pray for people that despitefully use you. It's God's life in you, not you. You can't do that, and I can't do that. And that's what makes us look like Him to the world because we don't act like mere humans. We begin to act like God. Not as people that lord it over with our nose in the air saying, I'm better than you, because we know how we got this. We got it through the cross. We know that if it were not for Him, if He were to take, be taken out of us, we're just like those people. We're, we're, in fact, we can be worse. A backslidden Christian can be worse than the worst sinner. So therefore, therefore, the challenges. And this is a parable. Let us labor. New King James says, let us be diligent to enter into that rest. Let us be diligent to enter that. And how do we do that? By keeping our focus on Him and on the cross and what He did for us there. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things become new, and those new things are of God. Verse 21 is the great exchange. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God has given to you his own righteousness to wear so that you can come into his presence with the same confidence and the same boldness that Jesus can enter into because it's his righteousness you wear. But you've got to put it on. You've got to put it on because you believe it's yours, not because you somehow measured up to it because you'll never put it on if you look at yourself. You'll only put it on if you keep considering him, the high priest of your confession. And that's why chapter 4 enters by saying, therefore we can come boldly with confidence to a throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. Because we don't come as ourselves. We come in Him. So what is it that we're to be diligent we don't drift away from? Is we don't drift away from our focus that it's not me, it's Christ in me. It's not my effort. It's not my righteousness. It's not based on me at all because there's no way I can do it. But what God's called me to be, what God's called me to do is based entirely on the work that he did and that work's been finished. So I'm to enter into the rest that God's resting in, in that finished work. And I'll end with this because the Hebrews later on says, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. In the Old Testament tabernacle, there were no chairs to sit in. Why? Because it said that the work wasn't finished yet. But Jesus is seated. Why? Because the work's been done. And all we do is enter into that completed work by simply believing that God's given it to me. And that is an act of your will. It's not an emotion. It is an act of your will. You just choose to believe it because God's Word says so. And then you settle it and you don't look back, forgetting what lies behind. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray.
Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus right now. And we thank you for your grace and love. We ask you, Father, because many of us are struggling right now with this various issue, even not realizing that we are, but we're worn down, we're worn out. Our walk with you has gotten so burdensome, so difficult, so tiring, that we're almost on the verge of giving up and just quitting and saying, I can't do this. Lord, today we've seen your word that said you've not called us to do it. You've called us just to believe you, that you've done it for us. And in our natural minds, that seems too good to be true. But it is the good news. It is too good to be true, but it is the truth that your word teaches us. And so our prayer today, Father, is that you will continue to open our eyes to see in our inner man what Christ has done for us and that it is done once and for all, all time. And help us to enter into that rest.